Well, it's so good to, just to be with you all this morning. Uh, apologies for some of the technical delays earlier. We're still figuring this out. It's been a while. So, um, you know, it's been over 18 months since when we've been able to be together in this space together. Uh, and I'm extremely grateful just for all of your patience and understanding as we've been navigating uh, how to be together in a safe and meaningful way. Uh, as Harmon mentioned last week, it's going to take some time for us to relearn uh, and rebuild what our community is. And, you know, this won't be the same community as it was pre-pandemic. And we'll have to be intentional to relearn uh, and to rebuild relationships. And there are many things that many of us have experienced that our community isn't even aware of. And so, before we jump in today, I just want to create some space and give it a, a safe and, you know, small opportunity to reconnect. Um, and I invite you all just to share something that you've learned or picked up or you became better at during the last year and a half. Uh, I know all of us, when the pandemic first hit, we had grand visions, grand goals of what we were going to do and what we we're going to learn. Um, but what actually came to fruition? All right. So for those of you here at Vesper, uh, you know, chat with someone next to you. For those of you who are online, feel free to throw something on the live chat. But what's something that you learned uh, or became better at over the past year and a half? I'll give you a moment to do that. All right. Well, this is a very pleasant view to see, just having people interact again and people reconnecting. So I know we haven't done this in a while, but I invite you to throw some things out, right? What were, what were some things that you picked up? I'm curious to hear over the past year and a half. Anyone? Sewing. Okay, that's a good one. I did not do that. Anyone else? Patience. Yes, we had to learn a lot of patience this past year and a half. Walking the dog. You got better at it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Washing hands. Yes, we did a lot of that this past year and a half. Woodworking. I like that. I like that. Um, I know for me and for you know, many, um, you know, doing home projects was a big thing this past year and a half. Uh, there were a lot of things on my list that I finally got to after like years. Um, and so, you know, things like installing closets, light fixtures, building a climbing wall with my son. So we definitely picked up a lot of skills over the, over the year and a half. But the one skill that I think I enjoyed the most learning this past year was actually cooking on a Blackstone flat, like a flat top griddle. That was a lot of fun for me to, to pick up. Of course, the first meal I had to cook on that was breakfast because you have to do that, you know? So eggs, bacon, hash browns, that's beginner level. And then started doing like quesadillas and polenta, which tastes amazing on, on that. And then started learning how to make pad thai, pad siu, crab fried rice. Sorry, I'm, really, I'm getting really hungry. Um, but I'm still working on some of those tricks, like flipping a shrimp tail and catching it in my hat. Kind of so I'm still working on that. that that's, that's coming. But when it comes to spiritual formation and growth, um, you know, I've shared this here before, but the framework that we adopt when it comes to that uh, is more about a centered set model versus a bounded set model. And what I mean by that, uh, I think of an image here is, you know, with a bounded set model, the focus is on establishing what that boundary is, whether it's beliefs 
or behaviors or rules or doctrine. And, you know, I know for a lot of us, myself included, we grew up in church contexts where the focus was entirely on that boundary because it made it easy to determine who's in and who's out. And that's what was defined as growth. The centered set model, on the other hand, is focused on what's, what's at the center, right? What are we moving towards? And are we moving closer or are we moving away from it? And for me, that's been a much more helpful framework of formation and growth. And so the question I want to explore this morning may seem simplistic, but one I really want us to consider. How are we invited to center ourselves and our community around Christ, especially in this next season, especially as we've been navigating reconnection and a very challenging uh, transition even within our community? In the lectionary text for this morning, the author of Hebrews brings us back to the story of Jesus and invites us to consider how we might center ourselves and our community around Christ. And so we start in verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so we're not exactly sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it's written to a community that's become overwhelmed. Uh, as they try to establish this new community, trying to follow Jesus, um, they're experiencing the burden of being peculiar, of compassion fatigue, of being discriminated against. And so they're starting to lose their way a bit, maybe even losing their faith. And at the time this was written, there's still some mystery around who Jesus is. And so the author here is trying to tell the story of Jesus and offer some context for a better understanding of who and what they're actually trying to center themselves around. And he highlights how God would previously speak through messengers, right, through prophets. And instead of talking about or pointing to the message, the message has now come in a person, right? Jesus himself is the message, and he's the clearest picture of who God is. And so the author describes Jesus as the reflection and the exact image of God. And I think what the author is getting at is to not overlook the fact that Jesus is actually the embodiment of God. You know, the prophets, they had talked about him. They had, you know, shared their thoughts on him. They even talked about how to prepare for him. But there's no longer a need for messengers anymore because he's come in person. And so there's a big difference between following the messenger and following Christ. And for us, we're invited to center ourselves around the person of Christ. Not a dynamic speaker, not a charismatic leader or figurehead, not our favorite theologian or writer. Yes, they can help facilitate our understanding, but let's not forget to center ourselves around the person of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, he also addressed this same thing uh, in his letter to the Corinthian church. 
you know, people in that church were they, they're name dropping, like what church leaders they're following. You know, some followed Apollos, some followed Paul, some mentioned other big names at the time. But Paul reminds them that they're all missing the point if they don't recognize and acknowledge that at the core, right, at the foundation, at the center, is actually Christ. And apparently this tendency to get sucked into celebrity culture is not something new for the church. You know, I've been reading Scott McKnight's book, uh, A Church Called Tav, and Tav is the Hebrew word uh, for good. And he was writing this book as a reflection on where the church has lost sight of what's at the center. And in this era where churches embrace celebrity culture and emphasize expansion and growth instead of character, how have we forgotten the invitation to reflect and embody God's goodness? And so he developed a circle of Tav, which focuses on nurturing habits of goodness while resisting things that keep us from goodness. And so, for example, you know, as we nurture empathy, we resist a narcissistic culture. As we nurture grace, we resist a fear culture. As we nurture justice, we resist a loyalty culture. Or as we nurture service, we resist celebrity culture. And as we nurture Christ-likeness, we resist leader culture. And I had our NAV team and our staff uh, reflect on this circle at our recent leadership retreat. And just to consider where Vox was doing well and where we weren't. And after some honest reflection, the one habit that was consistently mentioned uh, was needing some more intentionality, was nurturing Christ-likeness. Which is both disappointing that there seems to be a gap there for us as a church, but also an opportunity for us to reimagine you know, how we might nurture this more in our next season. And so we reflected on how in the more recent years here at Vox, there seems to have been an overemphasis, you know, on self-care and boundaries, which is important, but sometimes it comes at the expense of actually living and embodying the love of God in a meaningful and healthy way. And as we look out at the greater landscape of Western evangelicalism, you know, that seems to be embedded in celebrity culture, we have an opportunity to revisit what our place and expression is as a church. How are we centering ourselves and our community around what it means to embody the person of Christ, his teachings, his life? And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is just to reflect on who we choose to center ourselves around. You know, as much as we've been drawn to certain people or leaders or writers, are we looking through them to actually center ourselves around the person of Christ? And as we reflect on who we are as a community, right, how might we reimagine a way to nurture our community to actually embody the life and teachings of Christ, where we integrate them into our lives and not just talk about them or talk around them? And so Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. And then we continue in chapter 2, verse 5. Now God did not subject the coming world to angels, but someone has testified somewhere, where are human beings that you are mindful of them, 
or mortals that you care for them. You have made him, referring to Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. So I know that's a lot to process there, but essentially the author is presenting a hierarchy, right, of who fits where. And the listeners at that time already had a notion of how everyone fit, right? God's at the top, then you got angels, then you got humans, and then you got the rest of creation. And the question the author is engaging then is where does Jesus fit in that hierarchy? And there was already a practice of worshiping angels in that context. And so if we look back at chapter one, the author is making a case that Jesus as the son of God is actually higher than the angels. And yet Jesus ends up subverting this hierarchy. And by becoming human, he actually puts himself under the angels. And based on his social status here on earth, puts himself even lower within the human hierarchy. He was intentionally moving in a counterintuitive direction in order to model for us the love of God. And so for us, we're invited to center ourselves around the downward mobility of Christ, to consider what it means to move in a counterintuitive direction so that we can embody authentic love and not be tied to our ego. You know, Paul writes about this exact idea uh, in Philippians, in what's known as the Christ hymn, and this is how he reflected on it. He said, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. And so that's a clear picture of downward mobility. Not holding on to power at any cost, putting aside privilege, experiencing humiliation. And how is that reflected in our own posture of what we pursue and the way we live? You know, if we go back to the circle of Tav, that habit of nurturing Christ-likeness is paired with resisting the leader culture. And what he means by leader culture is how the world of business leadership has influenced the church this movement towards a corporate business model of leadership. And that started with churches like Willow Creek when they started to grow and, and gain influence. It was essentially the pastor as CEO model. And that attracted entrepreneurs and visionaries and structured the church as an organ organization to be tailored for upward mobility, for expansion, for growth, to increase the bottom line. The focus was on achievement and accomplishment and impressive measurables. But on so many levels, that's the opposite direction and posture of what Jesus was modeling for us and for the church. 
And so for us, maybe this week, we can look for opportunities to practice downward mobility. You know, maybe that might mean looking for a way to let go of power and privilege that we normally lean on or take advantage of. Finding a way to share or even offer our privilege to those who are under-resourced. Or maybe that might mean intentionally experiencing a humiliation because that's healthy for our ego. Anything we can do to embody and center ourselves around a posture of humility. And then we close in verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. And for this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them siblings. And so a crucial part of Jesus' human experience was suffering and death. And the author uses the image of Jesus as a pioneer who was going ahead of us to experience and model what the path was going to look like. And his suffering was not coming from a wrathful God, but instead it was for the purpose of being in solidarity with humanity. And that's why the author uses the language of siblings at the end. You know, Jesus is removing the hierarchy and establishing a common connection between all of us because of the suffering he experienced. And so Jesus embodied downward mobility in order to know our pain and hurt. And so for us, we're invited to center ourselves around Christ's solidarity with our suffering. We're invited to reframe our own suffering in the context of Christ's suffering with us. To recognize that he's gone before us and made a way through, made a way forward through suffering. So last month, uh, my wife Rachel matched an accomplishment that I had achieved years ago, uh, and not in a good way, because uh, she also got shingles, which I got years ago. And when I first got shingles, uh, my doctor was concerned, because that's, you know, not common for someone younger. And so he asked me if I was under a lot of stress, which I was at the time. You know, I was working full-time here at Vox, trying to finish up seminary full-time, raising three young kids at home. But I wasn't really acknowledging it, and I was internalizing all of it. And that was the way my body was telling me that I had overextended myself beyond my capacity. And surprisingly, it was not a fun experience. You know, blisters were painful, my muscles were sore, my skin was extra sensitive, just had migraines. And so when Rachel got shingles recently, I knew exactly what she was experiencing, the pain in her body that she was feeling. I also understood how underlying stress was causing her body to respond in this way. And so I was able to advocate with her and advocate for her to address some of the things that were creating an abnormal amount of stress in her life. And even in her pain and discomfort, Hopefully she was able to experience my solidarity with her in a path forward through her pain. 
In his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, James Cone reflects on the suffering of black America and how the horrific racism and violence that they've endured and continue to endure. And from his theological perspective, he views Jesus as the first lynchee who foreshadowed all the black bodies who would be lynched. And the Roman powers and structures that crucified Jesus are essentially the same powers and structures that lynched black people in America. And because of that, God knows in an intimate way the suffering of those people because God's own son was lynched. And so this is how he reflected on the solidarity of Christ's suffering with us. He said, through the pain of Jesus' cross, though the pain of Jesus' cross was real, there was also joy and beauty in his cross. This is the great theological paradox that makes the cross impossible to embrace unless one is standing in solidarity with those who are powerless. God's loving solidarity can transform ugliness, whether Jesus on the cross or a lynched black victim, into beauty, into God's liberating presence. Through the powerful imagination of faith, we can discover the terrible beauty of the cross and the tragic beauty of the lynching tree. And as the, power, as the pioneer of our faith, made perfect through suffering, Jesus experienced the worst that this world and humanity could offer. He received the full force of our violence and our wrath. And it's through this that Christ is able to offer solidarity in our suffering. And we are now given the same invitation with those who are powerless and suffering to be in solidarity with them. And that's what it looks like for us to center ourselves around Christ. And so, Vox, my hope for us is that as we slowly come back together and rebuild our community in this next season, that we would be intentional about centering ourselves around Christ, to live and embody what Jesus modeled for us, to resist the celebrity culture that's been so toxic in our churches, to live as salt of the earth and pursue a spirituality of ordinariness and to be in solidarity with the marginalized and those who are suffering. So let me close with this prayer. God who models downward mobility and shows us love without ego, may we center ourselves around a posture of humility and a spirituality of the ordinary. Jesus, who pioneered our faith by suffering in solidarity with us, may we center ourselves around the care for the powerless and marginalized. And Spirit, who guides us in discerning our faith, may we center ourselves around the person and teachings of Christ. And we ask all this in the love of God, our creator, the empathy of Christ, and the discernment of the spirit. Amen.